Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader, and this is The Turning Point. We have a couple of guests today. Our first guest is Sharon Begley. Hello. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Yes, good to be with you. <laughs> okay, thanks. Let's, let, let me introduce you a little bit and give people an idea what your background is, then we can go straight into the interview. Uh, Ms. Begley is the senior science writer at STAT, that's S-T-A-T, the life sciences publication of the Boston Globe. Uh, previously, she was the senior health and science correspondent at Reuters, and before that, the science editor and the science columnist at Newsweek, and she's a contributing writer to The Daily Beast. She is the author, co-author, I should say, with Richard Davison of The Emotional Life of Your Brain and the author of Train Your Mind, Change Your Brain, and her most recent book, 
published earlier this year, is Can't Just Stop, an Investigation of Compulsions. And today we're going to talk to Sharon about an excerpt from the book published in the recent issue of Psychotherapy Networker. And uh, the article is entitled FOMO, F-O-M-O, Our Brains on 24-7 Alert. First question, of course, is FOMO is what? What is it? It's uh, the acronym for Fear of Missing Out. Um, it was coined about uh, 10 years ago, um, and it means what it sounds like. It's this pervasive fear, apprehension, that other people might be doing something, um, being someplace, just having rewarding experiences, knowing something that, um, that you are not participating in. Is that possible? Are they? <laughs> I'm anxious already. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. You're fine. <laughs> so, so we can talk for a little while and it'll be all right, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> you, say, you start off in the article saying that um, uh, to sort of understand this, uh, you take a look at uh, the idea of video game psychology. Uh, how do you mean that? So in this chapter of the book, um, I looked at both video games and online experiences, um, you know, going to websites, um, being connected by smartphone, texting, um, using social media, etc. And what they all have in common is this amazing, um, really um, quite commendable, um, if you're trying to make money on it, um, ability to exploit something that the human brain is wired to do, and that is to respond to what are called intermittent and variable rewards. Um, and the, the sort of traditional or classic example of that is the slot machine, where if you, you know, you put your chip in or your money in um, and you pull the, the arm or more recently if you just push the button, mm -hmm. you're rewarded sometimes. Sometimes you get, you know, um, orange, lemon, jackpot and you get nothing, but sometimes you get three jackpots and you get, you know, a whole bunch of um, uh, rewards. But you can't predict when that would happen, nor can you predict how large the reward would be. And when a payoff structure is like that, um, you don't know when and you don't know how much. The brain just responds by pulling that, that, that slot machine arm or pushing the button or checking the phone or playing the video game hmm. more and more and more because we just we can't um, we're can't, just can't, wired to want that reward. Exactly. Can't just stop, right? So, uh, that, yeah. um, but some people would walk away from that saying, "This is not. Uh, this is driving me nuts." But most people are that way, right? Uh, right. So we're making generalizations, um, and you know, I would say very definitely most people, um, and if not to the same degree as others, we all have a little bit of that in us. Um, we just respond to rewards like that because evolutionarily, um, you know, those of our ancestors who recognize that sometimes there would be huntable animals at the water, watering hole, um, they were the ones who brought home, you know, the saber-toothed tiger, whatever it happened to be. Mm -hmm. So if you respond to that kind of reward structure, it can indeed bring a payoff. And it can be, you know, again, millions of years ago, um, a life or death payoff. So that, that little of atavistic brain wiring remains in most of us. So it's a real trick for the people who program these slot machines or the video games or whatever they are to, to make sure that somebody is sort of winning all the time and that it doesn't go so long that you lose that uh, reward anticipation, right? I mean, it's up to them to figure that out. 
Exactly. Um, you know, you find the, the Easter egg, um, you, you level up to the, the, the next level, um, just something good happens to you. Because, yes, as you're, as you're saying, if that's uh, walking away, if you get nothing out of it, then, you know, most of us would say, well, forget it. Um, I'm going to, you know, do something else that might be more rewarding. And absolutely, um, video game designers, as well as website designers, um, know this very, very well. Um, so much so that um, some of these, these websites, Expedia, most famously, um, had as one of its um, staffers a senior product manager of compulsion, hmm. um, and and others have de- hired consultants to <laughs> quote develop compulsive experiences. So they are very aware of the you know how the, the human mind and brain respond to these reward structures. Uh, speaking of which, um, you're saying in the article, and it's based on this is based on uh, studying a lot of research that was done. Uh, the drive behind, I'm paraphrasing, the drive behind the constant use of the internet, especially via smartphones, is more like obsessive compulsive disorder than addiction. So why is that, and what, what's the what's the distinction? Right. So when I was starting the book, um, I had just a horrible time getting experts to distinguish for me what was the difference between an addictive behavior and a compulsive behavior. Um, so some beha- the, the, the first behavioral addiction that was recognized is gambling. Um, and then there are compulsive behaviors. Um, and again, OCD is the classic. Um, that's where, well, it can show up in uh, many different forms, but a classic one is that somebody feels that their hands are covered with germs, so they, they compulsively wash them scores of times throughout the day, or you have this feeling that you left your front door unlocked or you left the stove on or whatever it happens to be, so you compulsively go back to check whether that is indeed the case. Um, So the difference between an addictive behavior and a compulsive one is that addictions start with something that's pleasurable. You get you know, this this positive hit, I call it in the book a hedonic hit, one that brings you happiness or pleasure from gambling or from eating chocolate or whatever it happens to be. Sex. In contrast, whatever, yeah, Yeah. you know, pick your favorite thing. Um, From, you know, watching baseball games, from whatever. Um, In contrast, a compulsive behavior, a compulsion, arises from a very negative feeling, and that negative feeling is anxiety. And the behavior that you then execute in response to the anxiety is the compulsive behavior. And the reason the experts compared our online experiences to a compulsion rather than addiction is that, again, we're generalizing, but at least for many, many people, the reason that we keep checking Facebook, that we keep checking our text, the reason that we you know, boot up the smartphone, actually we probably never turned it off overnight, first thing in the morning, is this, this stress, this anxiety that we are missing something, that we are not connected. It's not that pleasurable a feeling. It really arises from something negative, and we're executing this behavior in order to damp down that anxiety. Hmm. So uh, um, the idea that we might be uh, missing out on something, um, it's, uh, well, let, let me move on a little bit because the, the article kind of, uh, well, this is, uh, what's this, is this one chapter from the book or it's not? It's, it's part of a chapter. So the whole book okay. looks at the, the gamut of compulsive behaviors, from hoarding to internet stuff indeed to classic OCD and even more, yes. Well, I know uh, a whole lot about OCD, uh, being that way myself, uh, at times, you know, and well, what, you're, what you're fending off, or what I, I only speak for myself, but I've noticed other people with this, what you're fending off is disaster. You're fending off uh, some, it's, it's like hypervigilance that soldiers have in combat, or that some people who grew up, let's say, 
in um, a household where anything was likely to happen and it was usually bad, they developed a sort of hypervigilance, which is hard to lose your whole life. And this is what it sounds like. This, it's like hypervigilance. If something bad will happen to you if you don't do this, right? That's very well put. And, and again, um, it's the, the, you're constantly on alert. So again, whether it's washing hands or, oh my God, I left the stove on, it is this feeling of anxiety and you have to do something to dissipate it. Otherwise, it, you know, it just bubbles up inside you like hot lava. It's absolutely intolerable. Um, moving on in the article, um, you talk about uh, the, you know, the fear of not being connected. And some people have... Uh, made this association and it always seemed pretty uh, pretty clear to me. I mean, I, I live on um, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I live in Manhattan, you know, which is already like, you know, uh, everybody's carrying their cell phones everywhere. And I should say not everybody, but everybody who seems to be in their 20s and maybe in their early 30s. And uh, you make a couple of points in your article about the generational, uh, some generational differences. But uh, one thing uh, you mentioned in here is uh, the fear of not being connected, which is a general theme here. What will happen to you um, if you're not connected is the same thing that some people have noticed that happens. This is universal uh, to children who feel like if they're not connected to their mother, there will be they will cease to exist. It's a tremendous it's called the great anxiety in my mind, you know, and um, there's the idea in uh, psychology of transitional objects. So children are like this. They may suck their thumbs. They may have a blanket. They may have a toy or a teddy bear, which has fallen to pieces, but they have to hold on to it because when they're not with their mother, or even if their mother is a couple of feet away, this connects them to their mother. So there's some comparison here with the way people walk around. Actually, even when they're not on their phones, they're clutching them. They won't, they won't let go of them. Absolutely. And, you know, there have been studies that have found that when people are separated from their smartphones, their heart rate rises. They experience other signs of anxiety. Um, when people are, are asked what, what happens, what do they feel if they have to turn off their phones, um, they report negative feelings, um, anxi anxious feelings, um, even, you know, bubbling over anxiety. Um, and that fits with um, related studies that show that people text as a way to escape anxiety. Um, in, in one uh, piece of research, something like 70% of the people said that smartphones and texting help them overcome anxiety and other negative moods. So, you know, they are doing it as a, you know, pick your favorite, uh, you know, cliche, um, a security blanket, something like that. Um, and they turn to their mobile phones in addition as a way to disengage during times of the most intense distress. So, you know, you're, you're describing a, a, some generational differences, Mike, and I'll just throw in one of my own observations. Um, in social situations, at, at parties, dare we say, um, I have noticed, and, you know, correct me if this is a bizarre observation, that younger people, yes, 20s, 30s-ish, will more likely be looking at their phone in such a social situation than older people will be. And I can tell you as someone who is very, very shy, yeah, those kind of social situations, if you're at a party where you don't know a soul and you have to just walk up to strangers, oh, yeah. it can really be distressing, absolutely. So instead of doing that, they're looking at their screens, and that is absolutely a way to sort of drain away some of the anxiety that they're feeling. So it doesn't necessarily matter, uh, and I'm familiar with this, you know, uh, I hardly have ever gone to a party because I'd be, I would have no idea what to say to people. I'm, I'm good on one-on-one, -on -one, but in a social situation like that, I can understand it. Um, it's not so important necessarily 
what you're texting is that that you're texting. I mean, that your fingers are moving and that you're connected is more important than even what the connection brings or the, or the substance of the connection, right? Oh, absolutely. The content really doesn't matter. Um, it's this feeling, again, in the social situation. So you're surrounded by strangers, but through that magic screen, you're connected to someone who you love, who has your back, who supports you, who you feel a connection to. And that is, you know, that, that makes a huge difference. Um, but the thing about security blankets, uh, uh, ultimately, uh, if you have like uh, even something within a sort of general range of developmental success with kids, um, security blankets or teddy bears or whatever ultimately get shed when people move on to another, when children move on to another developmental stage. So what's the next developmental stage? I mean, you know, are, you know, 150 billion people going to, uh, you know, shed their, uh, if this is the connection, then then what's next? What's after this? Is there, and also this is a two-part question here. Um, If people are using these things in social situations, doesn't that sort of create itself in a kind of a circular way so that they'll never be actually learning how to uh, to socialize at all? Two questions. That's right. So if, exactly. So if you always look at your screen when you're feeling social anxiety, then you will likely never learn to, you know, make the, the small talk that, um, you know, greases those social situations. As to your question about what comes next, um, I don't know, brain implants um, so <laughs> that we, you know, with just a thought are then connected to whatever website or texting um, app um, works. I don't know. Um, I think behind your question is whether people um, who grew up on and with social media and with smartphones, um, all the technology that we're talking about, if they will in any sense grow out of it. Um, And that is, you know, impossible to answer. Um, But what I think, not what I think, what's been reported that many people are feeling is that they have become too dependent on um, this technology. And so you're seeing more and more you know, days of just turning it off. Um, the, the, I think they started in San Francisco. They spread across the country and perhaps across the world. And the idea there is to, um, you know, you've mentioned OCD, so very analogous to how therapists treat OCD, which is, and I'm going to give a ridiculously abbreviated description, but yeah, all it right. is basically to, to teach people in cognitive behavioral therapy situations that if they can just hold off for seconds, minutes, giving into the compulsion, the world will not end. That, that fear, that apprehension that you described as feeling that some disaster will strike. If you can teach your brain, if you can train your brain that, in fact, that disaster will not occur, then at least for some patients, they are able to hold off to resist giving into that compulsion. So by analogy, the sort of day of turning off um, that uh, many cities have adopted is like that. Um, the idea is that you go, maybe not at first for a whole day, but you know, maybe in the morning um, you don't turn on the smartphone right away. Or if you sleep with it and it's on, maybe you don't sleep with it overnight. And you teach yourself that, in fact, whatever you think you were going to miss, in fact, maybe what you did miss, the fact of missing it is not catastrophic. And there is some research suggesting that you can train your brain to believe that and therefore to sort of 
to, to, to step away at least a little bit from this technology. Um, so, you know, that might be a future, at least for people who feel that they are too controlled, too tied to, to, to you know, smartphone websites, whatever. So that's one way if people wanted to step away from it <clears throat> or to control it more. Uh, the other is, uh, you know, what could uh, overwhelm everybody. It's almost like it's not like Brave New World from Huxley, you know, where everything is sort of implanted in people and they're acting in ways they don't even understand because they're part of a larger even network themselves. It's not that there's been all kinds of uh, movies like this. You know, you're part of the network. The network is not something you contact. The network sort of, you're inside it like a fish in the ocean. That's the other side of it, you know. Um, exactly. Um, but, you know, what's interesting is um, uh, maybe, maybe people will develop 12-step uh, groups because that's what it sounds like. You know yeah, so 12-step so is a whole nother interview. Um, but yes, the idea, I, I, that's why I, I prefer the cognitive behavior therapy analogy. Well, yeah. I think that has much more you know, empirical evidence to support it. Um, and, and really, people have, I mean, we probably each know friends, um, acquaintances, family, family members who have had success in training themselves to understand that this disaster that they expect will not happen. But, you know, I think um, you and I will just have to reconvene in 10 years to see how it has all played out. I guess I shouldn't have said 12-step uh, groups because that is to treat addiction. So I, it's more, more your, uh, your, your, what you've pointed out is probably, but you're just general groups where people get together and, uh, you know, you call somebody up. I mean, if you feel like you're going to uh, turn on the phone, maybe, oh, of course, then you would have to use the phone. <laughs> you would call somebody and say, I'm afraid I'm going to call somebody. Text somebody, I'm afraid I'm going to text. I don't know how you deal with that. But, uh, and, of course, the, the deepest thing here is, and you mentioned this in your article, um, is uh, the idea of, and we've been talking about this all the time, is existential dread. The fear of missing out, the fear of not knowing something, of not getting a reward, all of these things at the bottom of all this, which is sort of at the bottom of almost everything, is, a, is an existential dread, which is a fear of not existing. And you mentioned this in the article, right? Yes. Um, it's the idea that you are just not a, a, a player in the world, that you are not um, tied into other people. Um, in fact, when in some of the studies where people's phones were taken away, and actually let me backtrack one sentence, um, these are people who volunteered for the study, they understood what was going to happen, and the study was indeed you're going to live without your phone and other technology for uh, typically 24 hours. Um, people reported just really, really extreme feelings, um, and they literally, some of them literally said, I felt that I was dead. Um, their anxiety level rose, their heartbeat rose, um, all the other measures of uh, stress and anxiety rose. People really feel like they, their existence has been erased, um, you know, and that's why I think we also see that in, you know, 15 seconds of fame on Twitter or anything else on reality TV. Um, I, you know, you'll, yes, you'll need a better philosopher than me to explain this, but somehow we have entered a phase of society where we need this external validation that we exist, that we matter, that we are having some impact on the world, and more and more that validation comes from either social media or something, um, you know, online with electronic digital technology. 
I can think of a person right now as uh, a living symbol of this kind of existential dread. <laughs> we could both think We're of him. We're not right? going to go there today. <laughs> I, I might, but I wouldn't take. I won't make okay, you responsible. You <laughs> I mean, I do that all the time. But um, uh, near the at the end of the, I wish there was more time, but there is never enough time. Uh, fear, <laughs> fear of missing out. Uh, uh, at the end of your article, you uh, you say that, uh, you know, you do mention that a lot of people who do these studies of people who are younger are like a decade or sometimes a couple of decades older, right? Which is which is interesting in itself. But then somebody else pointed out, somebody else said, why call this in, like an obsession, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder? Why call this a disorder at all or any kind of mental aberration? It's just people, and this is sort of at the end of the article here, just people adapting themselves to the way things are. In other words, it's an intelligent, reasonable response to, to, to be connected. If everybody else is connected, you actually are left out. Isn't that the way it is? And yes. you, but, but you use a word at the end of your article, and it, uh, it says, let's see, this is how we should understand, you know, that it's adaptive behavior and all. This is how we should understand the digital compulsion. Uh, not as pathology, not as a pathology, but as the result of the online world's ability to tap into something deep in the human psyche and make it and make many of us digital casualties. It's a funny word to use for adaptive behavior, being a casualty. You know? Yes, and the reason I put it that way is one of the, 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 the sort of through lines in the book um, of Can't Just Stop is that if you have a compulsive behavior, it does not mean that your brain is broken. It means that you are responding in a way that uh, arose in brain development, brain wiring for very strong evolutionary reasons. Um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that if you feel that some catastrophe is about to befall you, it's a pretty good thing to be, you know, attuned to that, because if you're not, in fact, indeed, catastrophe can befall you. But that can go to an extreme point where it indeed tips over into something like OCD. But yes, what I really wanted people to understand from the book is that if they have one of these behaviors, one of these compulsions, whether it's digital or anything else, their brain is responding with anxiety to something that promotes that anxiety. And by understanding that, they have a better chance of um, overcoming it. Well, that's a hopeful way of looking at it. I mean, where I walk around on the on the Upper West Side here, and I go into Riverside Park and other places where I, you know, near where I live, I see, and you point out instances of this. Uh, you see people like I see a father and a teenage daughter at a at a coffee shop, and both of them are staring at their individual phones where they otherwise might have been talking to each other. You have people playing with their kids in playgrounds. You know, where they're pushing swings, but not even looking at the kid who could be falling right out for all they know, staring at their smartphones. Um, I guess it's a tr that is a terrible compulsion because the, the great connection is resulting in a tremendous disconnection, right? Listen, I raised my children in an older era, um, although it was only a few years ago, but it was before, um, you know, parents had the behaviors that you just described. So I am totally with you, and I think it will be a, um, or it is, uh, you know, we're, we're all human guinea pigs here. How will the children who are raised like this, who see that their parents find that the screens are more interesting than them, the children, um, how will they grow up? How will they feel? How connected will they feel? How disconnected will they feel? It is, you know, an experiment that, you know, a lot of people did not sign on to voluntarily. 
Uh, well, finally, it seems to me uh, <clears throat> that this is uh, uh, this kind of, uh, I mean, people have experienced parents ignoring them before. This is as old as there are parents and children, right? You know, neglect, uh, not responding. A lot of times what people will do is, <laughs> once again, I refer to a commander in chief, they will, uh, you know, make a show of themselves every single second and provoke people because they haven't been paid attention to. I'm making another huge generalization here and psychoanalyzing somebody. But uh, it seems to me that these kids I see, I'm already getting the feeling that they're going to develop one or two responses. One is they're going to go into a complete depression because they were ignored. Or, and again, I'm using extreme examples, or they're going to make a show at it. They're going to make a, you know, a scene all the time. They're going to say, hey, what about me? Here I am, no matter what it takes to get people to notice them. I mean, this is not normal connected behavior, and so there's going to have to be some extreme demonstration of, uh, of uh, you know, of, of me being here. Hey, I exist, and sometimes it gets to be very loud and very noisy, you know. Uh, I think you're right. I think people will either have to literally jump up and down and scream if they're, you know, a five-year-old, or or do so in a slightly um, more uh, acceptable, civilized way. But, you know, whether it's um, calling reporters, if you happen to be in that White House that we're talking about and going on tirades, but it really is, um, you know, the, the finger pointing, here I am pay attention to me. Um, and, you know, it's also been observed for, you know, decades of scientific studies that children who grow up with a certain kind of parenting, in many cases, model that behavior. So we're not talking about just a single generation's experience. Um, I think we are looking at multiple generations and, you know, how that then gets baked into society. Um, you know, with apologies for repeating myself, it is an experiment and we have no idea how it's going to turn out. Well, um, all right. Uh, I encourage everybody. I haven't read this book, but for, based on the excerpt, I would encourage everybody to read this book, and I probably will be uh, ordering it myself online, of course. Uh, I can't stop myself from clicking. Uh, the name of the, uh, our guest has been Sharon Begley. It's B-E-G-L-E-Y. She's the senior science writer at STAT, S-T-A-T, which is the life science publication of the Boston Globe, and her latest book is Can't Just Stop, an investigation of compulsions. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on today. Great to talk with you, Mike. Thank you. Okay, thanks again. Um, let us go to, yeah, okay. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you have reached this recording in error, please check the number and try your call again. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you have reached this recording in error, please check the number and try your call again. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you have reached... Wow! Just stand it! Okay, um, the compulsion to be constantly in touch with people all the time. Um, and I guess we do lose a lot. Obviously, we lose a lot by that. 
Uh, our uh, second guest today on the show is uh, making a return appearance. He was here, here two weeks ago. And um, he is um, the author of, the writer of, the creator of a blog called Forsetti's, Forsetti's Justice. And um, he is um, making return appearance because we didn't get to everything inside his, uh, his fascinating article last time. And the article is entitled, An Insider's View, The Dark Rigidity of Fundamentalist Rural America. And um, uh, let me, uh, first of all, thanks for coming back. Oh, thanks for having me back on. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, let me, uh, and correct me if you don't like what I've done here. I've sort of reduced and edited um, uh, um, an autobiographical statement on your blog so people know who they're listening to. Um, uh, first of all, you, re- you prefer to remain anonymous. And some people asked me last time you were here, why would you be, an- why do you want to be your anonymous? Well, um, the people who know me know that I write under the pseudonym for Seti's Justice. Um, so most of my personal Facebook friends all know that. Uh, a lot of it's just I just don't want to deal with trolls. I deal with enough of them on my for Seti's Justice page. I just don't want to deal with my personal page. Mm-hmm. Um, for Seti is spelled F-O-R-S-E-T-T-I, for Seti's Justice. And... Um, your description, much reduced here by me, and correct me if you don't like what I've done, is uh, he's uh, a man in his mid-50s and lives in a Big Ten college town. And he was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, but grew up in a very rural, small, very white, Mormon-dominated area of southeastern Idaho. And politically, he was raised in what he describes as an Eisenhower Republican home. Uh, He has a bachelor's and a master's degree in philosophy and describes himself as a practical idealist. And he's a self-identified progressive who disdains, this is a quote, disdains just about everything about modern-day conservatism, end quote. On his blog on Tumblr, that's capital T-U-M-B-L-R, which is a very um, good uh, blogging site for all kinds of things, uh, visual, audio, opinion, writing, on his blog on Forsetti's uh, blog on Tumblr called Forsetti's Justice, he writes about politics, equal rights, health care reform, race, uh, loss of and grief. And um, and it says here, whatever is irritating me at the moment, which I kind of like the sound of. Uh, I want to focus <laughs> on on a on a list in the article um, uh, that you wrote called Honest Truths, and you say this is a list that. Um, here I'll quote. Um, Here are the honest truths that rural Christian white Americans don't want to accept. Until they accept these truths, nothing is going to change. Uh, honest truth is that um, redundant? Why, why call it an honest truth? Yeah, I mean, probably it is redundant. It's just a truth. <laughs> but you want to make the point. I, I don't. I don't edit. I don't edit that often. I. And it's kind of a, a free flow stream of consciousness when I write. Well, all the better. So um, I, I just thought maybe you would make it, but it, it does make the point. I mean, I, I, I do the same thing. I kind of like uh, um, repeat things and exaggerate things just because I want to make sure that everybody's really understanding what I'm talking about, you know. So, um, right. Um, so be, but we, before we get to this list, which is an interesting list, um, last time you were on, we talked about, uh, you know, the social contract and I was thinking about Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence and the men who wrote the Constitution, you know, particularly James Madison. You're talking about really well-educated, 
uh, you know, upper middle class, upper class, a lot of them, you know, very wealthy people, um, far from the typical American of the time, you know, who have studied philosophy and all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, writing uh, from uh, Europe and other places. Um, I wonder sometimes, and this is me talking out loud and you can chime in here. I mean, I wonder who they imagined they were creating this democratic system for. I mean, um, did they think that, do you think that they really understood that the mass of citizens were really not like them at all? Did they really get that? Uh, I mean, except for the desire, the common desire to be free of tyranny, obviously, and live their lives in peace and freedom. Uh, I mean, they could never have imagined celebrity culture, you know, Donald Trump, political parties the way they are now, professional lobbyists, things like that. I mean, and uh, the second part of this question is sort of, um, or wondering out loud is, they took capitalism, I guess, for granted. I mean, you know, they, they, were, they were living in a system, a capitalist system, uh, although it was an agrarian society. But, you know, slave owners and capitalism, um, the rich and the poor, class system. So, uh, I mean, is the American democratic system something that they, that they crafted that, that really took into account the, the, the common mass of humanity at the time? And um, how these are two big separate questions, I guess. How does uh, capitalism versus socialism go with the social contract? Sorry, this is like a whole class here, right? So. Uh, okay. Well, I don't think that they their view of democracy was was limited in the sense that you know in order to vote you had to be a a, a white landowner male, and so that kind of excluded a lot of people. It excluded women, it excluded people of color, it excluded you know people who were poor, and so their view of democracy was not everybody. And I think they kind of laid the framework that was could be for everybody. But at their time, it certainly wasn't. It was for people like them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that's the answer to that part. As far as capitalism uh, and socialism is concerned, this social uh, contract, the reason why a lot of, I think one of the reasons why a lot of European countries uh, who have democratic socialism are very successful and have take care of their citizens a lot better is because they are able to blend capitalism and socialism in a way that works for their citizens. Mm-hmm. Capitalism is by far the greatest economic theory uh, as far as generating wealth. But it, re- it distributes it very poorly. Socialism is great at distributing wealth, but not great at generating it. Mm-hmm. So I think a combination of the two, when done well, uh, is very successful. We've never done that. You know, we're, we're way more, we do some socialist stuff. I mean, the U.S. military is a socialist enterprise, for better or worse. Uh, you know, our Medicaid, Social Security, all those are socialist programs, but we see that the conservatives are dead set against those. Oh, yeah. But we do it, we do it, but we do it on a somewhat limited basis. We never do it like countries like Denmark and Sweden and Finland and all that, Japan. So... I think with lots of things, there was a balance, and the balance between capitalism and socialism is what we need to find. Hmm. Well, I, yeah, that's a, that's a, I think that's a good analysis of, uh, of what it is. Um, also, I think in a lot of these countries, they have a parliamentary system, which is sometimes more sensitive to the needs of the populace and more immediately sensitive to the needs of the populace than our, than our system, the way it's set up here. But um, So th- this list of honest truths, and you say... Um, 
This is a list that rural Christian white Americans don't want to accept. Until they accept these truths, nothing is going to change. Um, and starts off with one, which is related to one later on. Uh, their economic situation is largely the result of voting for supply-side economic policies that have been the largest that have been the largest redistribution of wealth from bottom middle to top in U.S. history. And this is connected to point seventeen in your your list here. This is directly connected. It seems to me that they keep revoting. They keep voting for these Republicans who are um, who are actually victimizing them. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, and I, they don't want to admit that because they'd have to look in the mirror and say, I'm re- very much responsible for my own plight. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to, you know, people don't want to do that. <laughs> it's hard. Very, very few people are self-reflective that way. Nobody likes saying they're wrong. Yeah, it's hard for anybody, but uh, this, is, yeah. uh, this is a large voting block, which makes it sort of, uh, right. yeah. Um, and then you, you talk about immigrants. Uh, you say immigrants haven't taken their jobs, and immigrants are not responsible for companies moving their plants overseas. Could you amplify those things a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I love time. I mean, I, I, the area where I grew up, I, you know, every time I visit, and I hear people all the time, like, you know, complain about, about immigrants and that they're taking their jobs. I'm like, what jobs are they taking? And they never can give me an, a, a description. I'm like, are they, are they taking the jobs working in the fields, the jobs that you're not going to work? You know, and I've had conservative friends who who have worked with, uh, like where I live now, you know, we have a lot of a lot of orchards in the state. Mm. And, and this one conservative, she did a lot of work with uh, the orchard growers uh, for the state. And I asked her one time, I said, if, if all the immigrants stopped working, if they kicked them out of this country, how would, your, how would the orchards do? And she said it would compl- they would completely close down, every single one of them. So, and I'm like, exactly. I said, because there's, there's, no, you know, there's no white rural Americans who are stepping up to, to pick those crops, to, to do the produce, to work in the butcher uh, factories and, and everything else. So they're not taking those jobs. And, and Georgia's a good example. You know, a few years ago, Georgia had a very strict immigration policy, and it completely harmed you know, they're farming communities. Hmm. So I don't, I, I've never understood this notion that they're taking our jobs. What jobs? And they never can answer. Like, and I say, like, well, you look at all these, you know, people from uh, India or, you know, the East that are coming in and, and are doctors. I'm like, well, yeah, you didn't go to med school. <laughs> I mean, what? they didn't take your job because you never went to med school, so shut up. I well, just don't get that mentality. Well, I think a lot of people, like, for instance, if I, and maybe this has happened to you, I don't know, if you, if you call up, if you have, uh, let's say, just, uh, you don't have to have a lot of uh, technology, technological gear, but if you call up somebody and you want to, something's gone wrong with your computer or something's gone wrong with your phone or whatever it is, and you call somebody up, you're very likely to be talking to somebody in uh, Mexico or India, mm-hmm. right? right? And a lot of people complain about that, too. So what's, what's the deal with that? I mean, is who's responsible for this? Who did they did they take those jobs? Did they, did they somehow suck them away magically in, in some way we don't understand? I mean, how did they get these jobs that Americans don't have? Well, right, and they also want to, but they want it both ways. Like they want the technology that was made overseas. Mm-hmm. Like they're okay with that. You know, people will, will pick up their iPhone and complain about, you know 
things going overseas. Like, hold it here. What, what are you doing here? The thing that's in your hand that you're using was made overseas. Right. And, prob- and probably a lot of the apps on it were designed by people who are not Americans. And you're okay with that. So I don't, I, how you can't have it both ways. There's, there's a give and take. In the global economy, there's a give and take. Like we can't have all of it our own way. Um, you mentioned another thing in your list is, uh, you say number four on this list is no one is coming for their guns. You have to explain. All that has been proposed during the entire Obama administration, and this was written uh, right after the election uh, in, uh, in the fall, which seems like many years ago, actually, and, and also yeah. yesterday at the same time, unfortunately. Uh, all that has been proposed during the entire Obama administration is having better background checks. Um, so this is something that would have to be explained, too, right? I mean, that, that they, would, they would have to be aware of this and believe it. Right, because, because they are, if somebody comes out in an election, if you have two candidates, and one candidate is a Republican, and they say, I'm for gun rights, no matter what, and the other person says anything about guns at all, even if they're saying, like, I just want better background checks, that person's going to be branded, that person's going to be labeled, and the, they will vote for the Republican every time because for whatever reason they have a love for guns i grew up in gun culture my parents house had hundreds of guns and, and tons of ammo i understand it i took nra classes as a child the nra that i grew up with is nothing what it is now oh, well, how, about guns. how is it different than it was oh because it, it used to be about gun safety and i mean serious gun safety hmm. Now it's not. Now it's about promoting access to guns and guns that I never could have dreamed of as a kid. You know, and, and you know, high-end capacity, heavy capacity for uh, rounds. Like, I, I, mean, I was, you know, my kids, not my kids, my, my family, you know, they, they were deer hunters, a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. They had deer rifles, hold five, six shots. I don't need a high-capacity magazine for that. Like, what kind of deer hunter needs something that holds, you know, 30, 50 rounds? This whole idea. Like, they're, they're, yeah, this whole idea. I mean, they're, they're there to sell. They're a marketing firm now, and they're a marketing firm for weapons manufacturers. That's what the NRA is now. And so their goal is to get as much, as many guns and, and ammo sold, because that's how they raise money. That is not the NRA I grew up with. And the next point you mentioned here, and this is apropos of uh, the stuff that was just in the news yesterday and today, is uh, gay people getting married. I'm quoting here. Gay people getting married is not a threat to their freedom to believe in whatever their white God, whatever uh, white God they want to. No one is going to make their church uh, marry gays, have a gay pastor, or accept gays from membership. Right, and that was one of the big things that was, you know, trotted out when um, gay marriage is being discussed for the Supreme Court, was that if they legalize it, then, you know, it's going to make it so uh, churches could not turn away gay members or would have to marry, you know, gay couples in their, in their church. That's not the case at all. No one's ever done that. But that is the fear, and that's the fear that people get played on all the time. Any kind of social thing, like they just, religious freedom to them is under threat. 
And that just means that they are going to have to believe. Nobody's making you believe something differently than you do. But the problem is the more people that do, like the more people accept, you know, gay marriage, that just puts them on the outside. And they don't want to be on the outside because they were the dominant force for so long. They don't like being outsiders. You know, all these things we're talking about here, so you and I are talking about it. You have, you know, you see the truth of this, that people have to become, that these people have to become aware of this. And basically we're talking to each other or we're talking, right. uh, talking to people who agree with us, uh, who maybe who are listening to this show right now. And when you write your blog or, uh, you know, whatever, you're, you're talking to people who generally agree with you, although some people I'm sure violently disagree with you. But um, this, these are things that, uh, that, you say, let's say, I'll repeat this again. These are uh, things that they don't want to accept, they, you know, rural Christian white Americans. Until they accept these truths, nothing is going to change. And we talked a little bit about, and you wrote in your article, about how people actually do finally accept truths. And it's very hard for anybody to accept a truth that they've grown up their whole lives not believing, or it's, they feel like it's uh, in their life and death interests not to believe in this truth, or that it's a falsehood. Um, unless these people suffer in some way or have something personal happen to them. And there are many other points here, too, which we can get to. But uh, it's a question of, of uh, I mean, you can't just go and engage people or argue with them or lecture them or something like that. It's just not going to work, right? I have, I have ever found it to be successful. I mean, I can talk politely to people and try and just, you know, work them through their arguments and let them try and see where, you know, that falls apart or present, you know, good solid evidence to them and do it in a very polite, you know, manner. And it does nothing. Um, even, if they can, even if they admit that the evidence I've got is correct, they'll still go, it doesn't matter. Hmm. Uh, because you know, because because and because if they admit it does matter, then they're going to tug on that thread, and the whole tapestry might fall apart of their belief system. And they don't want to do that. So this is not just, uh, and we're talking about uh, every kind of what's quote unquote a minority. Which, of course, now if you add these people up, there there they are the majority, which is what you were talking about. Um, you know, women having access to birth control. Um, you know. Um, Blacks uh, here, you have to, you know, blacks are not, quote, lazy moochers living off their hard-earned tax dollars. Um, uh, these people uh, we're talking about uh, get more government aid, as you mentioned in some of these other points, than almost any other group, or maybe more than any other group. The tremendous amount of government uh, subsidies and aid, food stamps, Medicaid, farm subsidies, uh, Social Security, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, the farm bill is one of the largest bills in the in Congress. I mean, they get subsidized all the time. And they, then that's, you know, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. but, but you don't take subsidies from the government right and left and then turn around and complain when other people are doing it. They just have a different need than you do. But since they're, uh, um, since they're unwed mothers or because, you know, for all I know, like women in the, in the pecking order of things, and, or if they're black or they're Latino, it's a kind of a sin or it's something like mooching or they're doing something wrong or there's something wrong with them. But if they have a problem, it's uh, a very uh, important health issue or something that's absolutely necessary, right? No question about it. Right. Yeah, I mean, right, if, if somebody else... Somebody, so a group of people that they don't like or have problems with need help, 
then this can be viewed as they only need help because they have moral failings. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite phrases. And, but when they need help, it's not because they have a moral failing. It's because, you know, bad things happen to them. Well, yeah, I agree. And bad things happen to these, these other people, too, that need help. Not because they have moral failings. And speaking of moral failings, uh, you're talking about they using illicit drugs as much as any other group. There was an article in the paper the other day uh, which was basically talking about um, uh, the Midwest and the West, uh, which was saying that something like 50% of the job applicants get rejected for all these jobs that people, that businesses need all over these areas in the country because of drug use. And, uh right. Yeah, and uh, so so people in this uh, in this group think of it as a moral failing uh, for other people, but when they do it, it's a health crisis that needs sympathy and attention, right? Yeah. Well, if inner city, you know, uh, people are arrested for marijuana possession or use, that's a moral failing. If if you know young white boys in rural America are busted for opioids or meth, that's not. Mm. That's that's their thinking. There's there's it's a health crisis. You know the opioid problem in America is a health crisis, which it is. But so too is other drug use, and has been for years. The war against drugs was not a war against. It wasn't based on a health crisis. It was it was it was moral failings by groups of people we want to have put in jail. What we're talking about here is, uh, I mean, I wish we had more time, but but we don't. We're talking about um, people looking at things in a completely black and white way uh, because of religious upbringing or other kinds of upbringing like this, essentially religious upbringing. Uh, There is bad and there's good. There are sinners and there are the elect. Uh, There's them and there's us. Um, I'm afraid this is never going to change. I mean, if, if people identified as Christian, uh, what happened to forgiveness? I thought that was the essential part of forgiveness. Or are we talking about the uh, the Old Testament here? Where there's a far more unforgiving and wrathful God in a lot of cases, you know, in the Old Testament. I mean, the the, the God of the Old Testament can be a real hard case, right? I mean, not not very mm-hmm. forgiving. And uh, not like his uh, peaceful, forgiving son. It's almost as if these people, because of people who led them or taught them, have chosen the Old Testament God in a way more than the New Testament Jesus. Well, right, and the difference is it's, there, it's an ethical difference. The, uh, the ethics of the Old Testament is an eye for an eye, and it's, it's very, you know, reprisal and vindictive, where the ethics of the New Testament is is a more mature ethic. You know, it's, you know, love thy neighbor and love thy enemy uh, and turn the other cheek, and that's hard to do. Yeah. You know, we're still, we're still, you know, in the evolutionary process. You know, we're still, you know, have a lot of our brain that goes back in time where you know we're very protective and and very reprisal and and so the 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 appeal to Leviticus, for example, the laws in Leviticus appeals to a lot of people. And I've never understood, you know, particularly Christians who latch onto the Old Testament as their ethic. So here we are um, at the end of our half-hour discussion. Uh, You've got this list of stuff. First of all, how can people um, read your stuff? If you want people to read your stuff, how how would they read your stuff? What would they do? Well, they can go to Tumblr and just type in Forsetti's Justice, and they can find me there. Or they can find me on 
Facebook under First Eddie's Justice. That's F-O-R-S-E-T-T-I apostrophe S Justice, right? Correct. Okay, and um, there are some, uh, for the listeners, there are some really fascinating articles which are updated uh, when the author has time to do them, having uh, having a very busy life of, of his own. Um, and they are always very interesting and very likely to start you thinking or maybe uh, stir up your uh, your feelings, too. Uh, as far as uh, this this group of fundamentalists, there are fundamentalists all over the world. I mean, look at the newspaper today. <sighs> there are fundamentalists doing things in other countries which are astounding. At least uh, we've got we reached this point in this country where most of the time, or generally speaking, you're not going to get actually murdered, or uh, hung, or uh, or blown up for uh, suggesting something different than the larger group here believes. Right. Um, no. I mean, we used to, and the KKK was that, but, you know, we've kind of got away from it. But I am kind of concerned at some of the tone uh, and rhetoric the last year or so. Yeah, well, it looks like, uh, it looks like coming down from the top, maybe we have to start watching out for the Boy Scouts, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's true. When, when, they're, when they're yelling all together, USA, USA, and that lunatic, uh, that bully is up there talking to him. You know, you got to really watch out. I mean, that's a ready-made group with their uniforms and everything. But uh, that's another whole thing. Yeah. That's another whole analysis. <laughs> uh, all right, thanks for coming on again. And um, uh, it's uh, Forsetti's Justice on Tumblr. T U M B L R, uh, all caps. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Okay, and thank you again for listening today. If you have any comments to make, um, please feel free to make them. Go to FaderFiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com, FaderFiles dot com, and you can contact me. You can reach me that way, and I would be glad to hear from you. Until then, um, keep listening, and thank you very much. Even if they say you're wrong